sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Hear now God's holy word. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray this morning that we would understand, that we would believe, that we would trust in what you have to tell us this morning, and most of all, that we would go out obeying with cheerful hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So wisdom consists of really two things. Wisdom consists obviously primarily of understanding the word, understanding this book, understanding scripture. But wisdom also consists of understanding the age that you live in. What age do we live in? What time period are we? And the scripture men lived in all sorts of different times. David and Solomon were different than Abraham. Abraham was different than Joshua. Joshua was different than Moses. They all lived different time periods when God was doing different things. For about 1,700 years, to a large degree, the West has been dominated by Christianity. Okay? And there's been bad periods, there's been down periods, there's been weak periods, so on and so forth. But really, from about the 300s, A.D., until just recently, everything in the West, we're talking Europe, we're talking America, everything in the West was dominated by Christianity. Christianity was the majority position. And a lot of times it was a veneer. A lot of times it didn't go all the way to the heart. There was hypocrisy there. And there were some other bad things there as well. But overall, if you were in a country in the West, you could assume Christianity ruled. Okay, Christianity dominated. Well, now that has shifted. Really, we feel like it's shifted very quickly, but it hasn't. It's been a slow, gradual change. Someone asked Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway went bankrupt, and they asked him, how did you become bankrupt? He said, well, it was really, really slow, and all of a sudden, I went bankrupt. Okay? Well, that's kind of what's happened. It feels like it's really, really slow, and all of a sudden, here we are in a world where Christianity is no longer the majority. We are the minority position. Okay? You cannot assume your next-door neighbor is a Christian. You can't assume they go to church. You can't even assume they know what Christianity is about. You can't assume what they know what the Bible is about. We are in a minority position as Christians. We are ruled over in many circumstances, maybe most circumstances. We are ruled over by wicked men, wicked women, people who do not love Jesus, who do not love his word. Okay? How do we function in that type of a world? And that is why 1 Peter is so helpful. In 1 Peter, Peter's talking to men and women, new Christians in a lot of cases, who live in a world where they are the minority, where they are the ones in a position of weakness. They're not in a position of power. They're not in a position of influence. Okay, They're not, they're not rulers and kings. They're not living in a land made where all, the, where all the laws are made according to God's word. They're living in a land that is pagan, that is unrighteous. They're ruled by wicked leaders. There are women married to wicked husbands. There are slaves chained to wicked masters. 
Okay, this is the world they live in. And to a large degree, this is the world we live in. Okay, we live in. So how do we function in a world where our, the ones over us and the world around us is wicked? How do we do that? Peter answers that question. This is really what he's doing throughout the whole book is he is answering that specific question. How do we live as Christians as a minority position, as a weak position? Okay, so verse 11 is a transition, transition verse. A lot of epistles, Paul's epistles do this a lot. Peter does this here. There's a transition from who we are to what we are to do. Okay, now it's not a watertight compartments, okay? There's some stuff, obviously, in the first part of First Peter that tells us how we're to live. There's some parts in the second part that tell us who we are. But the first, for the most part, up to verse 11, it's who we are. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a chosen generation. We're the people who have this great salvation, undefiled, incorruptible, kept in heaven for us. That's who we are. We are God's holy people, okay? And now it transitions to, okay, here's how you're supposed to live. Here's how you're supposed to function in the world. And what he does is kind of typical. Paul does it several times as well, is he gives sort of a household code. Household codes were common in Roman times. They were just a list of the obligations and rules of each person in the household, okay? And here it kind of expands out to the government as well. What's interesting about this, okay, is that he does not generally list the master. So if you think about um, Ephesians and Colossians, both of them will mention masters and slaves, and they both mention husbands and wives, okay? Now, Peter mentions husbands, but very small. They have very, just one verse. Doesn't mean husbands are great. <laughs> husbands just have one verse, though. The wives have a long verse. It does, he doesn't even talk to the masters. In verse 18, he just talks to slaves. He doesn't talk to masters at all, right? And then he just talks to the government, to, about those who are submissive to the government. So to a large degree, he's just talking to the people in the position of weakness, okay, in this section. Unlike Paul, who addresses husbands and wives really equally and to a large degree, and especially in Ephesians, husbands have more verses, all right? And he addresses masters and slaves in both Ephesians and Colossians. Peter does not do that because he's really addressing those who are in a position of weakness, a position where they are the ones being ruled over by wicked, evil men. And he wants to say, okay, here's how you live in that sort of a situation, all right? So it begins with this. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Okay? And when he says sojourners and pilgrims, I mentioned this a long time ago, but I want to re recap this and say this again. He is not saying we are not at home in this world. And that's not what Peter is saying. Peter is not saying this world is not our home. We are just passing through. We are heading to heaven. Okay? Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Paul says the sons of Abraham will inherit the world. The world belongs to us because the world belongs to Jesus, okay? So it is ours. The world is, he's not talking about the stuff of the world. When he says live as sojourners and pilgrims, he's talking about sin. We are never to be at home with sin, with sinful people. We must reject worldliness and sin. This is always the case in the New Testament, okay? Yes, we can become too attached to this world in certain ways. But the bigger danger in, the, in living in the world is we become comfortable with sin. And that's what Peter's encouraging you. Do not become comfortable with sin. You do not belong in a sinful world, okay, with sinful people, okay? And think of Psalm 1. This is a great example of this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is the idea. The point is, not the world is bad, but sin is bad. And therefore, as sojourners and pilgrims, we are to not live like the world, not follow after their lust, 
not indulge their desires. We are not to be like the world. So that's really the idea, the idea that Peter's getting across. A lot of us kind of have this Gnostic idea that the world is really kind of evil and sinful, and we're not, it's really not something we should care too much about. We shouldn't love our stuff too much. And there, you know, there's dangers there. There's dangers there. But the bigger danger, I think, for us as modern Christians is to, is to think that is to compromise with sin and, and, uh, and not so much like loving the world too much. Peter's talking about compromising with sin, okay? And when things are bad, like they are in Peter's time and like they are in our time, it is easy to compromise with sin. It's easy to be at home with sin when there's sin all around you. Everybody you run into, to a large degree, is going to be a sinner. Everyone you read on the internet, okay? There's all these bad ideas coming. It's very easy to become comfortable and forget that we are pilgrims in the sense that we are not to be at home with sin. Our lectionary reading last week ended with this verse, which I just love. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So when Peter says we're sojourners and pilgrims, this is what he means. Make no provision for the lust of the flesh. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about stuff. He's talking about things, okay? So he says that. You're sojourners and pilgrims. Remember, you don't belong with the world of sin, all this sin. Abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Okay, so... The first thing he reminds us is, okay, there is a war going on, and this war is primarily within us. We tend to think of Christian warfare as fundamentally something we go do out there. It's something we attack, culture war, politics, all of that. That's how we view warfare, okay? and there are places for that. But Peter's reminding us, and this is really important, the fundamental battle is in here. The fundamental battle is our character. Now it moves outward. It doesn't just stay there, but it begins with personal holiness. The war against all the evil around us begins with our own hearts and our own minds and our own wills and our own emotions. It doesn't begin with changing politics. It doesn't begin with changing culture. It begins with personal holiness. Okay, that's the first thing he wants us to understand. All right, Abstain from fleshly lusts, these lusts. And he has a specific thing in mind, Peter does. I'm going to get to it. In a few minutes, be a specific danger in mind. We live in a world where we are the minority, a specific thing. But first, you have to understand we are in a battle as well, okay? So it's these fleshly lusts wage war against our soul. There's a, a phrase that says Satan's greatest uh, trick is to convince people that he doesn't exist, okay? That's his greatest trick. Well, I think one of his, another, maybe another great trick, is to convince us that we're not in the middle of a battle, that we're not in the middle of a, of a war, that everything's okay, that we're at peace, okay? Let me give you an illustration from politics. Again, a lot of politics are going to creep into this sermon. Um, from politics, a lot of Americans are waking up to the fact that for a long time, there have been people in America who have been destroying America. People, people wake up, they're like, wow, how did we get here? How did we get here? You know, how do we get to a place where our politicians work against us, where they work to destroy us, where they hurt us? Okay? A lot of Americans are waking up to that fact. As Christians, this can happen to us as well. You can get three, four years in and go, what happened? How did I get here? Well, you forgot you were in the middle of a battle. You forgot there's, these, I, there's sin and there's righteousness, and you forgot you're in the battle between the two. And so you just let things kind of ride. Let things kind of ride. You didn't fight. You didn't fight. Well, guess who's fighting? The bad guy's fighting. Okay? The enemy's fighting. You might not be fighting. You might be sitting in your easy chair, drinking your beer, watching football, but the enemy is seeking to destroy you. Okay? 
See, they're seeking to destroy you. When you become a Christian, you are enlisted in the army. And that enlistment never expires. You never retire from it. Until they throw you in the grave, then you never retire from it. It's interesting to me that when Jesus was baptized, the next thing that happened was he was taken out of the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, taken out in the wilderness to fight against Satan. You are enlisted in a battle. You are in the middle of a war. And this is not, we're not supposed to be frenzied. This isn't a fretful war. It's not an anxious war. We know we have the victory. We know we have the tools to win, but we must fight. Jesus giving us the tools doesn't mean we sit back and let him do the work. He expects us to fight. So there is this war against our soul. And we fight it by remembering who we are, by using the weapons God has given to us, the word of God, prayer, walking in the spirit, the fellowship of the saints, the worship. We use these things to fight against these lusts of our flesh. And it's just so important to remember this because we, we get sort of lulled into into sleep when it comes to our Christian life and it comes to this battle. It's very easy to become complacent in this. It's very easy to stop fighting. Well, the devil never takes a day off. He really never does. He is always trying to find a way to hurt you. And again, I'm not encouraging anxiety. I'm encouraging discipline. I'm encouraging steadfastness. Encouraging thinking, encouraging you to think about this and remember that we are in a battle. And this battle is for the sake of your soul. The second thing I want you to understand from this uh, phrase here is that sin destroys you, okay? Obviously, these two go together, but sin destroys you. We don't see it this way. Sin is tempting because sin is pleasant. <laughs> the reason it wouldn't be tempting if you didn't enjoy it, right, okay? The kid's never tempted to steal broccoli out of the bottom drawer. The kid's never tempted to do that. There's a cookie jar on top? Well, yeah, I might go take a cookie. Well, just like us, we're never tempted to things that aren't pleasant. Okay? And this is Satan's, again, one of Satan's tricks is to tell you it's not going to hurt you. It's not really that big a deal. Okay? It's not going to hurt you. Well, they're waging war against your soul. They want to, to, sin will destroy your soul. It will tear you apart. It will send you to hell. Okay? It's not a game. Okay? If you went home today from church and you walked up and there were like black suburbans out front, okay, and you walked in and there were three men sitting around the table and they had guns on the table, you'd be like, these men are not here for my good. <laughs> these guys are not here to help me. These guys are here to do me harm. Okay? And we would try to find a way to get them out of our house probably as quickly as possible. Yet, with sin, we are willing to entertain all sorts of things, bitterness and lust and malice and envy and laziness and greed and contempt of God's word and lethargy and worship. We're willing to entertain all these things just like the gunmen in our living room. It's like you got gunmen in your living room and you feed them pasta and give them food. You're like, hey, stick around for a while, guys. No, we want them out. Yet we entertain sin. This sin is waging a war against your soul and it wants to destroy you. It is not benign. It is malignant. It is a malignant cancer that will destroy you. And we've got to take it seriously. And it's hard. I think a lot of us, we don't have this, um, our generation especially, if you read the Puritans, they probably took sin too seriously, okay? You read the Puritans and you come out, you're like, I am such an awful human being. I don't even know why I exist, okay? That's how the Puritans thought. But for our, our generation, we don't take it really seriously enough. We don't take sin seriously. Oh, well, you know, what's the big deal with a little porn? What's the big deal with a little bitterness? What's the big deal if I steal a little bit here or there? We do not take sin as seriously as we ought. It is there to destroy your soul, okay? It wants to corrupt you, all right? 
So that's what Peter's telling them. You must abstain from these fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And the way you do that is you have your conduct honorable. You do good works. You do good deeds, okay? So the battle against sin is, we think of it primarily defensively, and that is true, resistance, but it's also offensively. We must pursue something. You must not just resist, but you must pursue. Any general will tell you the way you win a war is not just being defensive. The way you win a war, the way you defeat an enemy is by moving into their territory and taking ground. That's how you win the war. Okay? If we want to win the war against sin, we must move and take ground. You must become more righteous. We must pursue holiness. Holiness is not just something, it's something we must long for and desire and love. Okay, love. Now, the idea of doing good is one of the key threads in this whole section. This section runs from 211 over to 317. And the idea of doing good is mentioned repeatedly throughout this. So let me just read you some of these verses. Obviously, in 2.12, we see that by your good works, which they observe, they glorify God of the day of visitation. Here's 2.15. This is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then down in verse 20, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Chapter 3, verse 1, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct, and obviously Peter means righteous conduct, of their wives. And he makes it explicit down in verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. And then on down to verse 10, For he will love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. And then on down, he says it again. In verse 16 and 17 of chapter 3, Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, this is a really important point in this section. Peter emphasizes do good, do good. Do good, be righteous, obey. And that's what he's saying. And by doing good, he means obey God. And we tend to think about doing good as primarily horizontal action, okay? We do good to people, which is true, it's true. But what Peter's talking about primarily is good is defined by God. Be holy, obey God. Do what God says no matter what, okay? Obey God. And when we do this, we will abstain from fleshly lust. We'll put those fleshly lusts off and we will grow in holiness. Okay? And there's two things that happen in verse 12 when we have these good works. Two things in verse 12. First, they will hate you. Okay? They will speak to you when, that, when they speak against you as evildoers. Again, this comes up over and over in 1 Peter. Okay? They slander. They threaten. In chapter 3, he says they threaten you. They slander you. They talk, say mean things about you. Okay? They will ask weird questions about why are you not running with us? Why, do you, why don't you come along with us and do what we're doing? Okay, in chapter four, I think it is. Why do you not come along with us and do these sinful things? They will speak evil of you. When we do good, when we obey God, we can expect men to mock us. Okay, that is not <laughs> unexpected. And remember, we're living in a minority position now. Okay, we're not living in the 1950s. We're not living in the 1940s or the 1860s, or whatever you want to go back to. We're not living in those ages. We're living in an age where you, if you say, I am a Christian, and I love Jesus, people are not going to like that, okay? We must never be ashamed of that fact. We must never be ashamed that we are Christians. They will say 
bad things about us. And we've seen this. Good Christian men are often slandered today for all sorts of things. Being misogynist, being racist, being homophobes, being, I mean, you can make the list. The list goes on and on, okay? Christian men, and some of you may have experienced that as well. Never back away from your Christian's beliefs just because someone else might think you strange, might call you an evildoer, might slander you. That is to be expected in the world we live in. Okay? Kids are great at this, by the way. Kids will ask the, the, the wildest things. I remember the first time we moved into our neighborhood. The first question, maybe the first or second question, the kids asked of the neighbor kids was, do you go to church? Are you a Christian? And kids are just great at not being afraid at all of telling people they're a Christian. We as adults, we get a little more shy about it because you know there's consequences sometimes. But we should not be. Tell people. You are a Christian. Let me give you just one example of this, of not backing away. And really, this is what Peter's talking about throughout the text, is not backing away. He's not saying be obnoxious. He's not saying give people a Jesus juke, you know. Somebody's talking about football, and you say, well, I know a coach. His name is Jesus, and he's great. Okay, no, don't do that, okay? It's terribly cheesy to begin with, and no one's going to come to Jesus that way, okay? All right, but here's a good example. You know, most, we homeschool, or we send our kids to Christian school, and you, someone, you're talking to someone at the park, and they're like, well, why do you do that? Well, you have a couple options, right? You could say, well, I think it's best for my kids. Okay, that's a legit option. You could say it's a better education. Okay, that's probably a legitimate option. What do you say? Well, we're raising our kids to be Christians. We're Christians. We follow Jesus, and Jesus tells us to raise our kids to be Christians. Okay, well, that's, that's kind of a different answer, isn't it? That's the answer that they might look at you and go, what? What are you doing? Think of those answers. Give those answers. Do not be afraid to say it's because I'm a Christian and because I love Jesus. Okay? When that happens, two things can occur. One, they may hate you, but two, they may glorify God in the day of their visitation. Okay? They may come to know Jesus. Okay? Our good works are a major part of people, especially in a world like ours, coming to know Jesus. Okay? A, a world without Something up there can only hold for so long. I think as we look around, we see things crumbling. All this, there's people getting all sorts of new age stuff, spirituality. Spirituality is kind of making a comeback after for a long time, everything was materialistic. Why is that? Men were made to worship. Men were made to worship. They want to worship something. So it can only, we can only say there's nothing out there for so long. Eventually, men are like, hey, there is something out there. And we say, well, hey, I have an answer for you. I have Jesus. Okay, so with the good works, when we, when, we have, when we abstain from fleshly lust and we do these good works, two things will happen. One, they will slander us, but some will see. And this is a theme throughout Peter. Peter has a real focus on unbelievers, how, how we interact with unbelievers. Some will see and say, hey, you know, that's something different. <laughs> that's not like the world. That resonates, okay? And they'll see our good works and they will glorify God. Okay, and think of Matthew 5, 16 here. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, not everyone will do that, obviously. But some will. Some will see our good deeds and see our fellowship and see our love for one another and see what we're doing and go, you know what? I want that. I'm tired of this dead, empty world that we live in. Okay, and people, people there are so many people out there, I think, right now that are coming to the realization that what they've been taught about how the world works is wrong. And they want answers. Okay, and we as Christians have them. We have them. And our good deeds are often the portal to those answers. Okay? Often the portal to those answers. Okay, so we're not to be at home with sin. We're to fight against worldly lust. This means we do not let sin win and we pursue holiness. This will in some cases cause men to slander and cause evildoers, but in some cases they will glorify God. Now, what lusts specifically 
does Peter have in mind here? He's got one specific thing in mind. And we see it. And um, again, remember, this is one big section from verse 11 of chapter 2 to 3, verse 17. We see it in verses 21 of, uh, of chapter 2 and then over again in chapter 3. So just listen to this. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Okay, now over in chapter 3, listen to this. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. What is the temptation when we are ruled over by wicked men? What is the temptation when a wife is in a relationship with a wicked man? What is the temptation? The temptation is to justify our sin by the other person's sin. Okay? And that is what Peter's warning us against here. He's saying Jesus suffered under sinful men and he did not sin in return. You are under wicked rulers. You have harsh masters. You have husbands that do not obey the word. It does not excuse your sin. You cannot sin. Okay? And that is his point. That is the big point. And we're going to talk kind of, um, this whole section is one long section. So we're going to overlap throughout these sermons, whether we talk about uh, masters and servants or husbands and wives, there's some overlap. So I won't get to everything in verses 13 through 17 today. But I want us to get the big point of 11 through 317. The big point is there is always a temptation when we are ruled by wicked men, when there are sinners in our midst, to justify our sin by their sin. To say it is okay for us to behave in a sinful manner because they behave in a sinful manner. And we see this with kids, right? Kids are great illustrations. They, they sin so much, unlike us adults who are so sophisticated. Um, kids are great, you know. Well, you go in the room, one of your sons busted some his brother upside the head with a truck. Why'd you? Well, he stole my toy. He stole my toy, right? He took my toy, so I hit him in the head with my truck. Hey, well, okay, all right. Or girls do it too, girls do it too. Why'd you break her teacup? Well, she took my doll. Well, she took my doll, so I broke her teacup. It's more sophisticated as people get older, but they do it. How many Christian kids, kids raised in Christian homes, have justified leaving Jesus because their parents didn't do everything they were supposed to do? How many? Well, lots. You hear it all the time. You know, well, my parents weren't this, my parents weren't that, so now I'm leaving Jesus. Okay? They justify their sin by someone else's sin. And this is the point. Sin is never justified. We are to do good at all times. And do good, remember, is about our relationship with God, not about doing good towards other people per se. We tend to excuse sinful behavior because of how other people treat us. Okay? And this puts sort of a, doing good puts a fence around their authority and it gives us some direction for us as well. Right? So but again, verse 13, we'll go back to 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. In other words, you have to be obeying the Lord in submission. We never submit to the government just blindly. That would make the government God. We never, wives are never commanded to submit to their husbands blindly. That would make the husbands God. Okay? They are to submit ultimately to God. You don't, you dis, you don't disobey uh, God to obey the government. You don't disobey God to obey your husband. 
You obey God at all times. You do good at all times. This is the point. It is always doing good. And this is why in verse 17, Peter structures it the way he does. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor the king, honor all men, but fear God. God is at the center of it. God is the center of it. We must be in submission for the Lord's sake. Okay, and there's there's places we can resist. And I'm not, this is really not a sermon on resistance to government. I think people will hope it would and want it to be, maybe, <laughs> but it's not a sermon on resistance to government. There are places we can resist righteously, but it is hard. It is hard to resist righteously. It's hard to maintain your obedience to God while also resisting those wicked rulers. It is difficult to do. Okay? Some of this is easy. Some of it's clear, and we see, you know, the government asks us, comes and says, I'm going to draft your daughters. We're like, well, no, you're not going to draft my daughters. Okay? Go find somebody else. Okay? If, somebody said, if the government comes and says, hey, if you're going to homeschool in our state, then you've got to teach homosexuality. Oh, no, I don't, and I'm not going to. Okay? So there's some things that are easy, but some things are hard. Some things are more difficult, like taxes are more difficult. When to resist at that point? But it, the principle is, whatever we do, it must be in obedience to the Lord. Always, at all times, everything we're doing has to be done in a way that honors and fears God. Okay? The fear of God must dominate our thinking when it comes to this. And the danger here is, and we all run into this, is it becomes a horizontal sort of situation where all I'm thinking about is me and this wicked master. All I'm thinking about is me and this wicked government. And this relationship with, Lord, with the Lord is not part of the equation. Okay? And that's what Peter's trying to get us away from. Your relationship with God dominates. It is what dictates your actions. It is what dictates your uh, emotions. It is what dictates your desires. In everything you do, it must be obedience to the Lord. Okay? If, I'm, if I'm under a cruel government, I obey God. If I'm chained to a cruel master, I obey God. If the guy who cut me off in traffic is an idiot and acting like an idiot, I obey God. You know, if the customer service rep at the store is not giving me, not being kind to me, I obey God. In every circumstance, we obey God. And this is what Peter's hitting at. There is never a place, if Jesus, the perfect man, could endure all this suffering under the hands of wicked men and not sin, that is the example that he set for us. That's what we're supposed to do. Okay? We're not supposed to sin. Okay? Just give you one more illustration of this, and again, this is um, we'll talk about this some when we get to chapter three. But if a woman is married to a wicked man, and there are legitimate biblical reasons for her to get divorced, she is free to do that. Okay? But if she comes out bitter, angry, guess what? Satan won. The war against her soul, she lost, and this is the danger we have. There are legitimate evil's done against us. There are legitimate sins that we committed against you personally, against the church. And our danger in all of that is to come out on the other side corrupt. To come out on the other side sinful. Not like Jesus. Not like Jesus. There are righteous ways to win. But there are unrighteous ways to win as well. There are unrighteous ways to conquer. And we must guard ourselves against that particular temptation. And when I read this, this is what I think Peter's talking about. This is what I think his main lust he's worried about, is that <laughs> you justify your sin because of someone else's sin. So how do we work on this? Let me just give you two quick ways we can work on this, all right? 
First, do not justify your own sin in your home because of someone else's sin. Okay? Now, as soon as I wrote that, I thought to myself through the previous part of my day, I thought, well, I've already done that. <laughs> my kids get upset. Guess what? I justify me getting upset because my kids are upset. Okay? Husbands, your wife's not lovable today? Not very, being very sweet? You're like, well, I'm not going to treat her nice. She's not being very sweet. We justify our sin by her sin. How many times have we heard, well, he's not very respectable? Well, you're, just, you're justifying your sin by his sin. Okay? So in our homes, it's hard. And I think if you, you watch your attitudes, often we excuse our sins against others because those people have sinned against us. And we say, well, it's not a big deal. My kid was being a snot. Okay, I can be a snot back. I mean, how many times, how many times have we done that, parents? I mean, lots, right? Lots. Be patient. Be patient. You know, we're yelling at them. Be patient. Stop complaining. Stop complaining. And we're complaining the whole way through, right? Whining, complaining, grumbling the whole way through. We all do it, and we do it in life, right? Do in life. Some guy does something in traffic, or some guy does something at work, and we're just, we sin immediately. And what are we saying in the back of our minds? Well, he treated me like this, so I'm going to treat him like that. Okay? Don't justify in your personal life. Do not justify your sin because other people have sinned against you. And this leads to, and really, again, the main thing with that is keep the vertical relationship in view. Keep your relationship with God in view. See, when we're getting mad at that child, when that child upsets us and we excuse our sin, the only thing we're thinking about is us and that child. We're not thinking about God. But the fear of God must dominate us, must rule us. And that means we don't sin just because someone has sinned against us. Okay. And the second thing is cultivate the virtue of self-control. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, and this is really what we have to have. We have to have self-control because it is hard. It is hard. If you think about verse 18, if you have this cruel, harsh master who's ruling over you, it is hard to do right. It is hard to be obedient. It's hard to be faithful to Jesus in that situation. Okay? We have to cultivate the virtue of self-control. Say no to anger. Say no to fits of wrath. Say no to bitterness. Say no to those things. Lord, I'm not going to behave that way. I'm not going to act like that to my children just because they're doing that. And it's hard work. It's a work of the Spirit. It's not something we can just conjure up like that. We all struggle with it, right? So learn, cultivate that virtue of self-control. We are going to have to have it, okay? It does us no good, no good to, to fight against the rulers out there if we lose the war on our soul. And that is what Peter is saying. You cannot lose this war. In the end, that's what matters, okay? Yes, politics matter. Yes, culture matter. Yes, media matters. All that matters. But ultimately what matters is we must be faithful to Jesus no matter what, okay? Or we lose our souls. We come out on the other side and we're corrupt, and that's not where we want to be. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the work of the Spirit. This is a hard word. We are um, sinful creatures, and in many ways we are not as controlled as we wish we were, not as faithful as we wish we were. Uh, we pray that you give us strength, especially as we continue to see wickedness rise in our culture, as we have rulers and leaders who do not love you, who do not obey your word, who do not obey your commandments. Give us strength and grace to have the control necessary to obey you at all times. And we know this can only come about by your spirit, so fill us with your spirit to full measure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.